So if everybody's ready. Let's do it. All right. So welcome to Stronger Than This. This is different from our usual podcast. The We Can Be season will commence sometime soon. But in the meantime, we're launching this podcast to try and take a look at how community is meeting the challenge of the COVID-19 crisis and how people are responding at a human level to the challenges that they see, as well as how they're thinking about the challenges that lie ahead. One of the thoughts that has hit me repeatedly during the course of the last month is that we're all thinking right now about how to return to normal, but maybe normal isn't where we want to be. Stronger than this is conversations with people who are future-oriented and who are thinking about how we go forward and go ahead rather than go back to what we may or may not have enjoyed in the past. Right now, we're in the middle of this moment called the Great Pause by many folks, and pauses do give us an opportunity to think about what we are learning, what we're gaining from a particular moment, and maybe what we've learned about where we've come from and how we might want to do things differently. As I was thinking about folks that I would like to kick off this conversation with, top of my list was the guest that we have today, Jazeriax, who has been a... I don't know, one of my favorite thinkers about the subject of what change looks like and what needs to change, but also what's good about what we've learned and what we're learning as we move forward. And Jazeri, I'm just really tickled that you were able to join us today, and thank you for taking the time. I know you're really busy. No, it's my my honor, too. Um, I think that these are some of the things we should be thinking about, particularly what is, you know, what will our community, um, you know, our nation look like, you know, post uh, this great pause and how do we take, you know, challenges and the things that we learn through this experience and create a better place for us all. Yeah, Jaziri, I didn't, I didn't really do you proper honor in terms of describing who you are, and but I figure that most of our audience knows you uh, because you've been on We Can Be at least before, and the town knows you. I actually like to think that you're a national treasure, and so people across the country know you. But Jaziri is a hip-hop artist, an activist, co-founder and CEO of One Hood Media, which is an entity doing a lot of important work in our town at the moment. He's been the recipient of an Artist as Activist Fellowship at the Rauschenberg Foundation, past USA Fellow. In 2016, received an honorary doctorate of letters from the Chicago Theological Society, where Dr. Martin Luther King also received his honorary doctorate. So, not a bad pedigree to follow in. You're actually leaning into that, I think, in a really profound way right now. You're staying incredibly busy through this, actually mounting conversations about COVID and race, about how our society is thinking about the impact of COVID along race lines or not, and uh, also reaching out to not just the black community, I think of uh, a broad reach trying to engage society in a conversation about what the deeper meaning of this moment is. Let, let's talk first of all about how are you doing? This has been a month and yeah. it's hard on everybody personally and you're a, you're a person first. So what's it like for you at the moment? You know, I was having a conversation this morning with um, Fawn Walker Montgomery, who runs an organization called Take Action My Valley. We were talking about 
uh, how we are busier now. <laughs> like, I, like, how do we get busier now than we were uh, before? You know, I, I also in this moment, I mean, I'm, I'm safe. I'm, I'm blessed. I'm, I'm healthy. My family's healthy. And in many ways, I feel privileged because, you know, I have a, a, a safe home. You know, I have, you know, the luxuries that technology provides um, and I have the ability to work from home. So in, in many ways, I do feel privileged because I know that there are many folks that the coronavirus has just exacerbated situations, whether, you know, the home's not safe or if they have a home, do they have access to technology? Do they have access to food regularly? I mean, we're seeing the the lines, the, the, the long lines at the food banks. And so I do in many ways feel privileged and, and, and feel blessed. Mm-hmm. And I think this is why I feel a need to really begin to work, particularly to help marginalized folks and vulnerable folks to make it through uh, this pandemic. I should say that I relate personally to that feeling of uh, feeling very lucky that and fortunate to be able to navigate this time by working at home, by doing work that allows me to continue operating and also having family that knock on wood is as of this moment safe. That does feel like a tremendous privilege right now. And it is. We should actually acknowledge that. That actually brings up one of the core concepts behind this particular podcast series, which is that this uh, experience is not the same for everybody. And that's actually the work you've been leaning into. You've been really trying to draw out the ways in which different segments of our society are experiencing this in a much more vulnerable way Uh, where they feel at risk not only of exposure to the disease, but also of exposure to hunger and other other issues. When did it strike you that that was important to begin to talk about? It was really early on. And this was, you know, maybe shortly, maybe I think the the week after, you know, we kind of suspended operations at at One Hood and said, we're going to stay in. And folks were talking about locking down. It was a couple of of, of kind of virtual town halls that, that hit. And the first thing was we didn't see any black representation in these town halls. And so that was kind of like a red flag to say like, well, wait a second, we're not even being represented in this conversation around, you know, how do we move forward or how do we protect folks? You know, we started to have a conversation about what would it look like if we did our own conversations? Um, if we spoke directly to our community, we felt that, you know, we were more vulnerable at that time, but this was before the data came out. And so we felt that because of the, you know, structural racism that we encounter, whether it's going to the hospital or whether it's engaging at whatever level of public service, but once the data came out and it was so, particularly in places like Louisiana and Chicago Mm -hmm. and Detroit, and it was such a, um, a stark difference. It was a story I read that every person in St. Louis that died of corona was Black. That kind of caused us to say, okay, now we really have to begin to ratchet this up, not only with kind of a virtual town hall, but we really have to begin to take these messages inside of our communities and looking at, you know, getting, you know, protective equipment for folks in our community that are frontline workers that didn't have the access. Yeah, so I'm curious about what sort of messages you are conveying in the town halls. You know, some of the disproportion that we're seeing around the racial impact of COVID is, as you said a moment ago, attributable to institutional racism and history and the legacies of past effects. So, for example, people who have been living in poorer conditions, having less access to good nutrition, having less access to good uh, medical care, that compounds over time. 
Then they're also in jobs that are interestingly now considered essential, and people are referring to them as heroes for working at the grocery store or driving a bus or what what have you. And so they're both exposed more, and they have inherited health trauma that endures through generations that they're having to carry. And you can't really save them from either of those things. So how do you talk to them about what they need to know at the moment? Well, I think on top of what you just laid out, you also have a history of distrust from our community with the medical establishment, a book called Medical Apartheid that kind of lays out whether you talk about the Tuskegee experiment or such. So so when it, a lot of times when it comes to even vaccines, because of the history mm-hmm. that we've had with the medical establishment, it's a different conversation when it comes to our community. We've also, in many ways, distrustful of the media, um, right. you know, distrustful of the government. And we have historical reasons for this. It's not that this is just pulled out of the sky. These are the things that we, particularly on our first town hall, we felt that it was important to discuss. And we had a Dr. Tiffany uh, Gary Webb from the University of Pittsburgh to really talk about that. And, you know, we first, but first we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge that, right. you know, that that distrust is rooted in real history and real abuse. However, there are things that we need to know and able to survive this. And initially early on, it was a lot of myths. You know, there was a myth that kind of went viral on the internet that said if you had melanin, you couldn't get corona. Yeah, I heard that that rumor was going around. Right. And I mean, and I actually saw people sharing it on Instagram, very popular people. And so those are the type of conversations we wanted to have that like, I mean, I had somebody that just was sending me something like, hey, you know, Israel doesn't have any deaths because they're drinking lemon and water. And I'm like, there's actually a website you can go to (laughs) and see that this is not true. Like I said, are you fact checking this? And he said, no, I'm just sharing information. I said, well, if you're sharing information, that's not true. That's you can actually do damage um, to folks in our community. You can make folks have a false sense of security. And so it was just important for us to talk about the seriousness of this. And then, you know, in our, in our recent town hall, we had uh, state representative Summer Lee, uh, we had uh, County Council member Olivia Bennett. Uh, we had Jessica Ruffin from the Allegheny County uh, uh, um, Human Services Department to just talk about like what resources are available, like what is government doing on a state level, on a county level, and then what resources are available to our elders um, mm-hmm. who are who are very vulnerable. And we've seen some nursing homes um, get hit, and you know, um, and 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 it spread very rapidly. What do you do if you have a family member that's in one of these care facilities? How do you contact them? How do you get them food? Um, you know, what do you do if you're in a situation where because of the anxiety and everybody being inside, it's it's unsafe and domestic violence wise, it's unsafe. You know, we had a conversation about decarcerating the prisons. How do we help the homeless in this time and, and what's being done? Those are the type of information we felt like was important for our community in this time. And I think for us, it's about us being community folks that our community trusts. You're providing very practical, pragmatic advice, but also raising consciousness about issues related to what's happening uh, and related to the illness. What are you hearing back from folks? What are they telling you about what they're feeling or experiencing? And is there anything that surprised you? Well, I think the first thing that surprised me was just the level of engagement that we had on our first live. I, I think we were had you know it was over three hundred people that were watching it live. You know, we had you know over seven thousand views on it. We had over five hundred comments, and so I thought I think the level of engagement was surprising to me. I mean, I know everybody's at home, but 
you know, I didn't realize that folks would be tuning in to that level. And um, what we've been doing is kind of uh, looking at the comments and now that the shape where we go next. We were able to utilize a technology that allowed us to see all the comments while we were um, doing the town hall yesterday and incredibly positive and really people just suggesting like, can we do one on mental health? You know, can we do one focused on young people? And uh, the last thing I would say is, you know, for us, the first virtual town hall, we really called on Allegheny County uh, Health Department to begin to use race in the data collection. At that time, they were not. And to have them, one, contact us right after the virtual town hall and then really almost immediately begin to collect uh, data, a race in the data analysis was also something that we felt like, wow, you know, this if, if we speak with a collective voice and say as a community, this is something that we want and feel is important, you know, folks are listening. Yeah, no question. I mean, you're clearly having an impact, I think, on the conversation that the community is having and needs to have. I love the fact that part of the way in which you refer to organizers is wise black women. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about, about that, because I think that's an important part of this story. Yeah, that's that's uh, Dr. Cheryl Russell, who's kind of been our moderator. And, and she's, I think that's her Twitter handle is Wise yeah. Black Woman. It's important. I mean, so far, the, our, our guests have been exclusively wise black women, you know right. what I'm saying? I mean, our, our first guest was, yeah. you know, uh, uh, Dr. Um, Gary Webb, you know, and then, you know, to have Summer on, to have Olivia on. It's been, uh, and, and it's not like that we were necessarily consciously doing that. It was like, these are the individuals that are really out here representing our community, helping our community. A lot of the interaction that we've had and a lot of the folks that have been stepping up to the table have been Black women. Shout out to, you know, all of our Black women that are doing an incredibly powerful work in this time. We don't know how long this will continue. We can expect that it will continue for another month, it seems. Maybe beyond that, nobody knows. It's also clear that even when we're out of the woods, we're not out of the woods, that we, you know, we're likely to continue facing episodes of this for a while. Do you think you'll continue to do the virtual town halls? I, I do. We went in this with the idea of creating a platform that goes beyond just this current time. Um, we went in this to really say, what would it look like to create a platform for the other Pittsburgh? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I think when you talk about Pittsburgh, there's always that narrative of there's two Pittsburghs. And we recognize a lot of, you know, when, when it comes to particularly, you know, black and brown folks, poor folks, we're the other Pittsburgh. And so who's speaking to, who's providing information, who's connecting and giving resources to the other Pittsburgh. And that's something that we really looked at and said, okay, we don't want it to just be something that we do just in this time, because what Corona is doing is really just highlighting many of the issues that we were struggling with and dealing with prior to Corona. I mean, you think about it. I mean, before mm -hmm. Corona, folks were engaged in battling for affordable housing, battling to decarcerate prisons, battling for whether you call it Medicare for all or health care, affordable health care for everybody. And so when you talk about now a virus that we're only as strong as our most vulnerable. Then you start looking at, well, do we really need all these people in prison? You know, right. um, do we really, you know what I'm saying? You, you start yeah. making those decisions because somebody that's working there, a guard can come right. home and now a, a family's taken care of. And so to me, these issues are going to remain and sometimes, you know, might even sadly become worse when everything, quote unquote, gets back to normal. And so we definitely want to continue to have 
town halls, have, you know, flyers, graphics, information, videos to give information, much needed information on our community. Um, it's something that we have been doing at One Hood, but I feel like this actually has given us more focus and a bigger sense of urgency because what, what we're talking about right now is really life or death. You know, we're trying mm-hmm. to prevent actual deaths, but poverty also kills, you know, lack of health care also kills, you know, not having employment also kills. And so I think that's where we want to go to. I mean, just imagine you being called an essential worker and not even making a livable wage. I mean, it's right. it's it's ridiculous. And, and it's something that I think all of us can really begin to work toward. So the campaign definitely will continue. You can believe that. <laughs> you know, what you just said about the essential worker not even making the, a livable wage seems to me to be one of the takeaways of this whole moment in our history. We're being taught a lesson about what it is to be essential and what important work looks like. Uh, And I'm curious what other lessons you think society needs to be taking from this period. I think how connected we are. I think what happens, particularly in this last election cycle, I mean, you know, it's become so divisive. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of times we get into these camps. You know, it's, it's interesting to watch, particularly on social media, where nuance oftentimes isn't there. And it's I'm only going to share what my who supports my ideas. And, you know, if if somebody supports somebody else's idea, all of a sudden you're kind of canceled. And right. This, right. This, this super divisive. This virus isn't looking at race. It isn't looking at class, you know, and, and that somebody, you know, regardless of what your circumstance is, oftentimes, I mean, you still got to go to the store. You still right. got to get food. You still yeah. got to get water. We're all, you know, there's no toilet paper because we all need to go to the bathroom. And so I would hope something like this really people begin to look at how connected we are beyond um, these titles and labels that are that, that are given mm-hmm. to us often. So we can't have, you know, realistic, intelligent conversations with one another to kind of get over that um, next hurdle. It's funny. I haven't I've been outside more. <laughs> Since it's like, don't go, I mean, just to the park, you know, just walk with my family, you know, and seeing my neighbors, you know, checking on folks. Are you okay? Is there anything that you need? You know, I'm I'm going to the store. Can I get you anything? I mean, that, those are the type of things that I feel like hopefully we continue to carry on and we don't just go inside the house and shut ourselves off to only, you know, that echo chamber that kind of claps when we talk. Right. Actually, I think a lot of us have had that experience of suddenly rediscovering time outdoors and and time connecting and time with neighbors. Well, not with neighbors, but (laughs) checking on neighbors. I love the idea that you've raised up of understanding our connectedness, too. I think that's incredibly important. When you think about the implications of corona for our understanding of race, Let's talk about that for a moment, because it feels to me that that's something we really need to bring to the fore in this conversation. So it's teaching us lessons about essential workers and about what people are paid and how their worth is established. Uh, But we're also seeing differences along racial lines. And what does the broader society need to understand about that, if anything, leaps out at you that we've been maybe ignoring in the past? Or is it just simply that the price of racism and of institutional practices in history goes deeper even than we had appreciated before. Yeah, I, w- I would say definitely that. I, I was watching a clip um, Bernice King had tweeted from Martin Luther King today where he was talking about time. And 
a lot of times I think when we discuss race, people believe in this false notion that if we just wait, that time will take care of it and we'll mm-hmm. somehow birth a generation that will finally understand that we're all one human family and get along, get together. And he rejected that. He said time is neutral. In order for us to get to where we need to go, we really have to have tireless work and effort. If anything, I would hope that people see this is that race in this country can literally mean life and death. It's not, oh, maybe you pay more on your loan or maybe you, you know, you either you didn't get that great apartment, you had to live somewhere else. No, it can literally mean life and death in many cases. And, you know, beyond maybe an interaction with the police, but an interaction when you go to the hospital. You know, uh, the first 17 year old, I believe, that died of Corona was somebody that was undocumented and didn't have access to insurance. And because they didn't have access to insurance, they died. We've heard several stories about black people going to the hospital and not even being tested and being told they don't have it being sent home and dying because of, you know, this idea that we're stronger or we we, we, we might be faking or, you know, you don't have the same compassion mm-hmm. and love uh, when we come through those doors. And so those are the type of things I hope people begin to see and understand. You know, we, we operate on this idea that, look, oh, we're all one, we're all together, we're all Americans. But unfortunately, you know, this is a built in the structure of white supremacy. I would hope that we would come out of this with even more of a fervor to break down these structures that we know exist. We know the criminal justice system is inherently racist. We know that oftentimes, you know, when you interact with any type of economic or corporate system, it's inherently racist. And so I hope that we really begin to do the real work. To me, this shows like we have to get beyond talking about it. We've been talking about it, but we have to be very, very Man, um, intentional about it and purposeful. intentional, uh, yeah. intentional, yeah. purposeful. I was I was trying to find something harsh in that. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, get, get off work. of our behinds, right? Um, right. We we really we really got a lot of work to do, and I think that's what keeps me motivated to you know kind of wake up every day um, with that axe and kind of we got to chop down um, these barriers so the next generation will have access, but it's not going to come with just time is going to come with us actually pushing these things out of our way. Are you still creating by the way, as an artist, is this a, is this a fertile time or is this a difficult time? It is a fertile time. I am. And I am um, about to launch a programming contest for artists around producing messages that can speak to our community about, you know, staying home, staying safe and staying vigilant. We want to engage our visual artists to create, you know, relevant graphics that we can share with folks. And we want to engage, you know, our musicians to speak about this moment and what are some information and what are some things that we can create that we can share with our folks to just give them, you know, hope about, you know, our resilience through this storm. I think to me as an artist, that is the narrative that I believe should come out of part of this time is that if it wasn't for artists, what would we be doing? (laughs) And that a lot of the most inspirational things that I've seen have been, you know, artists coming together, whether they're doing live on their Instagram, live on their Facebook, the DJs having a party. Next Friday, we're going to do a poetry slam, an online poetry slam, and reward whoever wins. And so I think those are the type of things that um, I'm inspired by. And, and, oh, that's and great. I, that's I hope so great. on the other side of this, we really see like the value in art, particularly in a time um, where, you know, we're, we're faced with a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. 
it's art, it's music, it's culture, it's playing that song and just dancing. It's a lot of times that's what gives us hope. You know, you go to Frankstown and Homewood and it's a nice day. You see a lot of people out there. And I think that's why when we decided to kind of do this program, the idea was we knew we couldn't just do it virtually, that we're actually going to print out some of the graphics that we're doing into poster size and go to the communities. So if folks are gathering in some places, at least there'll be a message there to say, you're at risk, take this seriously. It's been an interesting period in Pittsburgh's history between the shooting of Antoine Rose. You were very engaged and vocal during the um, aftermath of the Tree of Life attack. You've been uh, at the center of a lot of the community conversations that have been going on about justice in this community. I'm curious, as you think about all of that now in the context of what's happening with Corona, what are you feeling about Pittsburgh at the moment? Man, I think a lot of things. I think, you know, one feeling is hopeful because I feel like we were, you know, making progress, particularly, you know, as a community kind of coming together, whether it was, you know, folks, you know, rallying for justice for Antoine, whether it was folks, you know, talking about the tree of life, particularly uh, for us to have conversations about allyship between our Black and Jewish communities, you know, our Latinx community, our Muslim community. That's the one thing is, is, is weird about tragedy, that it, it tends to bring us closer together. It tends to make us think about, you know, our, our humanness and our oneness in different ways. And I feel like we're coming to that. Um, on the other hand, I still feel like we have a long way to go in terms of protecting you know, our most marginalized and vulnerable folks. I think it's still sometimes a feeling that uh, folks can be disposable, particularly if people aren't really speaking out in, in, in many ways. I think this is one of the reasons where sometimes as activists, we get labeled as angry in a certain way because we're yelling and shouting. Mm-hmm. But it's oftentimes we're trying to speak for folks that, you know, because of, of the environments and the situation they find themselves in, can't speak for themselves. And so I think there's also a part, particularly in looking at what's happening with Corona and wondering, like, you know, everything I've seen around testing has been you have to have a prescription from your doctor. And if you don't have a prescription from your doctor, you don't have a health care provider, you don't have insurance. To this day, we still haven't gotten clear uh, messaging as to, you know, it's like call 211, but where do you go? How can you get tested? Right. What is the process? What is the procedure? You know, these initial numbers that come out say, oh, it's folks in Shadyside and folks in East Liberty or folks in Highland Park. It's like, well, these are folks that have access to the ability to get testing. What's happening in those communities where they maybe don't have access? Now, it's good to see something in Braddock and the North Side now around testing, but that still you have to have a provider. We have not got that to Pittsburgh thing figured out yet and how to make that two Pittsburgh, one Pittsburgh. What bothered me initially early on, particularly is this, you know, we're all together, we're all in, you know, and, and I start to feel like those right. are just words, but it's not, we don't really operate like that. And I, I would like to see us operate with that mindset of let's make sure we take care of our most vulnerable, the people that are that are most in need. And then for the rest of us, like, I'm good, you know? Right, right. Well, Jazeri, I promised to keep this concise, and I think we covered a lot of ground. You know, I, I love ending where you where you came out, which is that part of what we're learning is how to take the narrative of two Pittsburghs and I think two Americas and turn it into one, so that the platitudes about how we're all in this together actually become real rather than rhetoric. And I 
really want to thank you for the work that you're doing to uh, not only make it plain that sometimes the rhetoric gets in the way of changing the reality, but then actually providing information to people that helps them change the reality itself. I think what we can take away from this conversation is that this virus really is highlighting the ways in which the most vulnerable are vulnerable in our society and the inequities that exist in our society. Uh, you've pointed to how connected we are. You've pointed to how sometimes we can fall into false divisiveness. I think you've really drawn out this idea that we have work to do, that the work of knitting two communities into one, two Americas into one, is the hard work of focusing on justice and who is the most vulnerable among us. And that the stakes here are really life and death, and that we are literally seeing that in real time. Jazeri X, I, I can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing and for being on this program with me. And I look forward to all the work that I hope we get to do together in the years ahead. You know, I think these conversations are very important. You know, let's continue to use our platforms and our gifts and our voices to you know, speak truth to power until we reach that day uh, where we are one. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. <laughs>